You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. I'm your host, Jack Farley. It's Monday, December 21st. I'm going to be joined shortly by Peter Bookvar from Bleakley Advisory Group. But first, with the day's stories, Haley Drasnan. Hey, Jack. Markets wavered Monday as a new strain of the coronavirus emerged in England and prompted fresh travel restrictions across Europe. The worsening cases served as a wake-up call after enthusiasm about COVID-19 vaccines has pushed stocks to record highs in recent weeks. The Dow did inch higher Monday afternoon, but the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 were both down. Oil producers, airlines, and cruise lines were all hit by the resurgence of COVID-19 fears. Shares of Tesla even fell in their S&P 500 debut on Monday. Ten of the S&P 500's 11 sectors were actually in negative territory on Monday. The only sector to post gains was financials, which got a boost after the Fed said on Friday that it would allow banks to resume share buybacks. Some investors saw today's markets as a buying opportunity, also because of the big support around the $900 billion stimulus bill that's expected to pass in Congress on Monday. Americans could start receiving checks as early as next week. That's direct payments of $600 to most Americans and $300 per week for those enhanced unemployment benefits. It also includes $284 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program, which provides those forgivable loans to small businesses and more money too for airlines, vaccine distribution, schools, universities, food aid, and many other provisions. The package can help prevent a double-dip recession and boost GDP. It forestalls a double-dip recession, almost some would say. Investors may also be seeking to lock in profits from this news. With only just two trading weeks left in 2020, the S&P 500 is up more than 13% for the year, while the Dow has risen about 5% and the NASDAQ has rallied more than 40% this year as investors favor those high-growth tech companies. It is important to note that many of the stimulus protections will expire in the first quarter, so additional relief could be needed by March, and this will be under the Biden administration. While the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is expected to pick up by the spring, the sectors most impacted by the pandemic are unlikely to approach full reopening until later in the year. I'll let Jack and Peter dive into all of that more. But just on a personal note, ahead of the holidays, I want to thank all of you for tuning into RVDB. You've all been supportive of my journey on camera here since I started this summer, and I read your comments and continue to work on improving in my content and delivery. So I wish all of you and your families well this holiday season. Thanks again, and here's Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Thanks, Haley. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Jack, for having me. Of course, as always. So, Peter, we it's one of the busiest news days uh, this year. We've had, you know, Tesla is the first time trading in the S&P 500. Uh, there was recently discovered a new strain of COVID uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, the stimulus bill, it's announced that it will be passed. Um, the, the vote on that will be we, we passed, you know, shortly after uh, this, this interview films. Uh, what do you make of this day of, of intense and abundant news flow? Well, for sure, the news out of the UK was the main focus. Uh, I consulted with Dr. Google over the weekend when I started reading about this, uh, th these extra mutations. But supposedly, viruses always mutate. Uh, so I, I think that there's, as the day progressed in the US, uh, maybe uh, a growing relief that the existing vaccines will be able to address a lot of these mutations. So I think that, that is uh, sort of uh, bringing the theme that has been in place for a while, particularly since November 9th when Pfizer came out with their news that we're looking past COVID uh, and we're not going to certainly, um, I don't want to say obsess because it, there's obviously terrible health uh, consequences to this, but from a business perspective, trying to look particularly at those companies that are going to benefit uh, tremendously from the other side. Right. So- uh, how would you say the market is evaluating the risk of COVID-19? Um, and how are you evaluating that risk as we move into 2021? Well, the markets are, are again, looking to the vaccine and, and, and everything that, that, that all the benefits that come with it. Uh, if you look at the, the stocks that have been hammered the most this year because of COVID, well, they've had a sharp rebound since November 9th. Uh, I've looked at this year as sort of a tale of two markets pre-November 9th. Mm -hmm. And post March 23rd, you had tech and the work from home beneficiaries, and then you had everything else. And that everything else has certainly benefited uh, since November 9th, where tech in some areas have taken a breather and other, other areas have continued to explode higher. Uh, but at least from a market perspective and the indices, it's looking to the other side. And, and all I have to do is look to understand what the market is focused on. And that is a world with a vaccine and post-COVID and not one without a vaccine in the middle of COVID. Now, of course, there's a huge swath of the U.S. economy, small businesses, those in leisure and hospitality that will suffer, unfortunately, for the next couple of months with many not coming out of it. But when looking at the market, we're obviously dealing with bigger companies that have access to the capital markets uh, that will have a better chance of, of making it through. Right. Uh, Peter, I want to know what your outlook is on this growth versus value trade uh, for 2021. As you said, uh, since November 9th, we've had a big rotation away from those high-flying growth stocks into uh, the more beaten down sectors, you know, the industrials, the cruise liners, the airliners, the energy companies, um, commercial real estate, I might add. Uh, what's, your asset, what's your outlook on uh, those assets uh, for, for the new year? Well, I, I'm in the, the belief in the inflation and that it is not only coming, but it's here and is only going to uh, increase uh, as the next year or two progresses. And I'm not talking about going from one and a half to 2% to maybe two and a quarter, two and a half percent inflation. I'm talking about three tenths, four tenths monthly CPI increases, and that we're gonna see three, four, potentially 5% year over year increases in inflation. Now, granted, part of that is an easy comparison because you're, you're comping it against a, a COVID world, but I think even if you, you normalize it, you're still going to see a surprise to the upside. 
which means that'll be the bond market, the long end of the bond market that will be tightening rates for the Fed because we know they're going to overstay their welcome and keep rates at zero for forever, it seems. And that uh, this is going to lead to a compression of multiples for these these fast growing companies that are great companies. Uh, but I think that there'll just be a rethink in, in what to pay for them. So the, the value side has embedded in them low expectations. Uh, so I think investors will focus more on benefit they derive from a better economy and uh, will be least impacted by what I think is a compression in multiples. So I guess bottom line to 2021 is is trying to figure out what that right PE multiple is. Because I, I, I think that the economy is not going to have a sharp rebound with a vaccine. And the 10-year yield, I'm expecting a 10-year yield that's going to go to one5 to 2% next year, because it'll be the long end of the curve that tightens for the Fed in response to faster growth. And what I foresee is much higher inflation. So what's the right multiple to pay on that? Right now, we're trading at 22 times uh, 21 earnings and 18 plus on 22. And if I'm right on inflation, if I'm right on long rates, I would think that that multiple likely compresses. Now, there's also a huge swath of the market, not just in the U.S., but overseas, that are trading at lower multiples that I think will be more immune and have the potential of outperforming. So I'm really more calling out the, 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 the mega valuations uh, of stocks that are trading at 30, 40 times sales or even 100 to plus uh, to 200 times sales. And people have to understand that, again, a compression of a multiple with no change in earnings could be a big influence on the direction of that stock. Right. Uh, just to explain, Peter, your, your thesis to some of the folks at home, um, you're, you're thinking that the price to earnings ratio, which is the price of the stock relative to the earnings per share or the price of that, how much it's worth in market cap relative to its, uh, its net income, you think that that is going to decrease and that as inflation picks up, uh, investors are going to anticipate that inflation and on their long bonds, their 20-year, 30-year treasuries, they're going to sell those off and leads, which will increase the yield. Is that is that what you're saying, pretty much? Well, it, it'll it'll de- well, specifically in the bond market. Uh, if I'm right, you start to see the, the monthly prints of three, four, five tenths, uh, which I know some people are going to watch this and think that I'm crazy. But I think between a combination of easy comparisons and the rise that we're seeing in goods prices, uh, and part of that commodity prices, and that when you get uh, the economy, hopefully this summer with uh, with broad inoculation, that uh, the service side is going to see uh, a rebound in, in inflation again after seeing some compression uh, in 2020. Side, uh, we've seen sharp declines in rents in some of the major cities, but with home prices gaining 6, 7, 8% annualized, uh, you're going to see a rebound in rents. So in response to that, the short end will remain pinned by the Fed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the long end will be what is going to reflect that higher inflation. In addition to what I see is continued weakness in the dollar, which will import inflation and therefore cause a rethink in the high multiple parts of the market uh, that will see a downdraft in those multiples, even though maybe their businesses continue to do well in 2021. Uh, I, I think what investors are going to pay for that stream of earnings will be lower than they are today. Right. Okay. So, so throughout um, this year, or since April, I should say, we've seen break-evens uh, go ever higher and, and real rates go lower. So you're telling me that you think that this trend will continue. Um, and 
you know, I assume that that is very bullish for for commodities. Uh, what's your what's your view on commodities and those you know the stocks that uh, trade and and in those uh, in commodities? So I'm um, I'm having to be very bullish on commodities and commodity stocks. Uh, and to be specific, uh, I think energy stocks are setting up for a really nice move higher in the next year or two. Uh, agriculture in particular, I like the fertilizer stocks in that space. Mm. Copper, which has already had a nice run, I still think uh, has a lot more to go. I mean, about 350, 360 a pound, I think we're going to see four and a half dollars a pound. And copper stocks will obviously be a beneficiary from that. And then also precious metals, which are partly a commodity, partly a currency uh, that I think will uh, see further upside gains. And also, in addition, you can play the commodity currencies like the Aussie dollar, the Canadian dollar, mm-hmm. Brazilian. I think that um, over after 10 years of, of U.S. equity market performance, a lot of it having to do with technology uh, relative to the rest of the world, I think we're going to see that the other way, particularly emerging Asia uh, and even parts of Europe. And parts of Europe have, are, are basically a value stock wasteland, for good or better or for worse, with a lot of financials that I think will benefit from a steeper, steeper yield curve from right on inflation and also a better economy. And plenty of cheap bank stocks that have essentially been killed by the ECB, but maybe can, can benefit in, 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 in the face of that. And also there's, particularly in the UK market, uh, a lot of commodity type names like BP and World Dutch and BHP that I think will be beneficiary from right on, on the commodity trade. Right. So you're very, you're very bullish on energy. You just listed a few stocks. Uh, as well as the fertilizer space, uh, could, could you tell us? I'm not very familiar with the fertilizer space. You know, what are some of the biggest players in, in that market? Uh, Mosaic and Nutrien are the two biggest, at least in the U.S. But think about what what drives the demand for fertilizer. Fertilizer, obviously, uh, a need uh, to basically enhance the productivity of one's land. So if I'm farming soybeans and corn, uh, if all of a sudden, well. I need fertilizers every year, but if corn and soybean prices are low, uh, I have less money to pay for fertilizer, and maybe I, I, I skimp on it, which then impacts the yield, which then impacts the prices, which then eventually go up. And then once uh, crop prices start to go up, well, I have more income, I can afford more fertilizer, I can better treat my land, and I think that's what we're beginning to see now. In addition to a lot of supply responses that we've seen in, in, in some of these the, these fertilizers have also helped in mosaic nutrient have literally closed plants, even though we've seen some supply in, in Saudi Arabia and Morocco and some other places. But I think overall, when it comes to agriculture, as long as the world's population is growing, you can get the global demand for food pretty much uh, right and it steadily goes up. It's getting this difficult. That is sort of the, the marginal issue when it comes to both crop prices and also on the fertilizer space. And I think that uh, we've seen a nice move in soybean and corn prices of late, uh, and I expect them to to head higher, which will then also help the demand for uh, fertilizers. Thanks, Peter. Uh, just switching gears uh, a little bit, I, you talked about the assets that you were bullish on, which you, you expect to increase in value. Um, where do you expect that liquidity to come from? Do you expect it to come from the FANG names, which are perhaps a you know, very, very plump now? Or do you think that it's going to come from the IPO and SPAC uh, model, which are, you know, a, a lot of people are saying are reminding them of the dot-com era bubble. Where are you seeing the risks in this market? Well, keep in mind when it comes to flows, it's, you know, for every buyer, there's a seller. So for every seller 
of that FANG stock, there is a buyer. So to me, it's going to be more of, of, of where people are going to crowd in or crowd out of. And it is a, a good question. I mean, I think with the energy sector, 2.5% of the S&P, and I don't think it's ever been that low as a percent of that market, uh, all you need to, to do is get back to 4 to 5, and you have a rather sharp increase in, in these stocks. And it's not like I'm a, a long-term bull in crude oil, but I think we, we, we've seen over the last couple of years some starvation in the investment in, in commodities, in, in pulling. Now, shale obviously had a big 2019, but offshore drilling has had a sharp reduction in, in the pace of investment. And I think a lot of shale, it may take years before we get back to that 2019 level of production, if ever. And also globally, a lot of projects have been canceled ever since oil prices collapsed back back in 2014. I don't think we've had enough uh, silver mines found and copper mines, and that and that this this dollar shift to technology and Fang and all these others have literally deprived uh, the actual mining capital for higher prices. And you combine uh, a, a vaccine and an improved economy in 2021, 2022, and that is the formula for for higher commodity prices. So, so that's the formula for uh, higher commodity prices. I, I guess uh, what I want to know from, from you, Peter, is what's your outlook on uh, the snowflakes of the world, the Teslas of the world, the uh, you know the Nikolas, the the um, Neos, uh, you know other companies, Airbnb companies like uh, that. I, I assume, but because uh, you omitted it, you assume it's not uh, you know something that you are bullish on. But do you see a, you know, a major risk uh, in those assets for for investors? Well, I'm, I'm excited for the fundamentals of a lot of these businesses. Uh, I just get a, a nosebleed when I look at their valuation, and particularly Snowflake, which I have no position in either way. That's trading in, I think, 200 times sales, or maybe 100 times next year's sales. And I'm sure it's a great company, and I don't fully understand what they do. Get uh, there, there's a lot of room for error, and there are many, 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 many years of growth that you need to have to grow into that valuation. Now, with respect to the overall market, uh, I knew we wanted to you know, touch upon sentiment. I don't know if you want me to sort of segue into that, uh, because this ebullient sentiment is what is helping to inflate a lot of these multiples. And the question is, 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 is how long that can last? Absolutely. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, sentiment, and we should definitely transition to that. There's a, a chart you sent me, which is the Citigroup panic euphoria model. Um, and it's a very interesting chart because it shows how uh, in March we very, you know, we dipped into that panic mode, but now we are much more in euphoria mode than we are in in panic mode. What can you tell me uh, about what this chart uh, is, is saying, and specifically, you know, how how is this thing calculated? Well, I want to start by saying that I don't like to look at one. I like to look at because I, I want to see them corroborate each other because some Absolutely. sentiment gauges measure just how you feel, you bullish, you bearish, you neutral. Others are measuring what is actually taking place by investors, which is reflected in the put call ratio, advanced decline, up volume, down volume, uh, where the VIX is, uh, where credit spreads are, uh, where the where um, uh, indexes are relative to their moving averages, you know, to see how extended we are. Uh, so there are a multitude of these. So the, the city uh, panic euphoria, which I get from Barron's every weekend. Uh, they have their own proprietary metric, and that includes a bunch of inputs. And anything above 0.4 is considered euphoric, and, and everything below, I forgot which is the downside, is a measure of panic. And when it gets into one of those those sort of uh, those um, 
boxes, it is predictive of what the market performance will be over the next 12 months. So right now in the, in the panic euphoria index, the euphoria is at 1.65. That is four times the threshold line where you reach into euphoria 0.41. So that's how extended you are. And that is actually above where you were in the late 1990s and early 2000. So now it can stay there for sure. But according to Citi, it's highly predictive of a down market uh, 12 months from now. Now, you combine that with investors' intelligence, where there's almost a 50-point spread between the bulls and the bears, with the bull side in particular well above 60. That's considered extreme. You have in the AAII measure of individual investors, where bulls are well above bears. You have the city fear greed index that reached 90 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's come off that, but also showing extreme uh, bullishness. You have pull call ratios that are very low. So you put all this together and it tells you that a lot of good news that we're seeing right now with the vaccine and, and uh, another spending package and a Fed that is seemingly going to be easy forever has been reflected in prices. And you know, one thing I wrote about today is that when you have this level of, of ebulence, that sometimes a punch comes out of nowhere and, and knocks you for a loop. And you don't know where that punch is going to come from, but Sometimes it does, and, and a market that, that is that elevated with respect to sentiment is not only is not necessarily best able to handle it. And I, I think the vaccine will, 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 will get us past this, this, this new mutation, but I think, again, there's no room for error when you have this kind of uh, euphoria. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Mm. Uh, to, to, you mentioned uh, the, the, the taking away the punch bowl. To, to just run with your metaphor uh, a little bit, um, last week the, the Fed had their FOMC meeting and uh, they they certainly did not take away the punch bowl. They um, you know ha- have a, a lot of their programs are, are still running. But uh, you know one could argue that they didn't necessarily add to they didn't add more punch either. Uh, what did you make of that? Number one with the Fed, and then two, what do you make of the Fed's uh, you know expiring emergency lending programs uh, on, on December thirty first, which are sort of now being used as a uh, a, a political bargaining chip um, during the stimulus talks? Well, th- that that punch bowl is 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 pretty spiked right now. Uh, so yeah. I, I don't think, and 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 we we have a vaccine. So so the the, the Fed would have looked silly to increase uh, their their QE program now that we have a vaccine. In fact, I've argued that they need to 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 stop looking at what's right in front of their face and understand that that they are so far in 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 this punch bowl that uh, now with the vaccine, instead of thinking about what more they can do. They should be thinking about how the heck are they going to get out of this? Right now, Fed policy is is a COVID world of 2020. They now that we're heading into 2021 with a vaccine, they should really be thinking about how do they start removing some of this accommodation, not continuing it on. Uh, but that that's that's the Fed mentality. It's asymmetric policy that they dive headfirst into easing and and they crawl their way into into tightening. But as I argued earlier, it'll be the bond market. That'll end up being the final orbiter on on Fed policy on whether they're too easy, they're too tight, or they're just right. 
And I, I think it's easy to say that they're obviously going to be way too easy in 2021 because their policy is just not um, really correlate well with with a dramatically improving economy, which I think we're going to see with a vaccine. So with respect to the, the these Fed programs that, that Pat Toomey was instrumental in having them expire, well, they should expire. They were implemented in March of, in March 2020 when the world looked like a very different place than they do today. And, and I'm not a fan of, of, of the Fed doing this, this mission creep. And every, every single time we get a crisis, they create some new program that then never goes away. Uh, and, and that was clearly the case. So if, if, if Congress wants to come back, well, they can bring it back. But to, to give the, the, the Fed just this, this blank check that, that is just totally open-ended, uh, I, I'm glad we put some of these things to bed, particularly the purchasing of corporate bonds, which I think is, is, is a road they never should have gone down. Yeah, Peter, your point about mission creep is well taken. We, we take these steps and you know, sooner rather than later, we end up like Japan, where the, the quantitative easing involves actually buying equities. Um, on the other hand, just to play uh, devil's advocate, one could say that the emergency programs that we had this year uh, were not needed because you know, sh- shortly after March and into mid-April, we were uh, in, you know, into the euphoria phase and out of the panic phase. What happens if we enter a panic phase again? I know that's not your case, but what happens if we do and we don't have those uh, emergency lending programs? Could, could that be something that's uh, very negative for, for stocks and the economy? Well, from a market perspective, markets left to their own can readjust. And yeah, we're gonna, we, we saw a, a, a disappearance of bids back in March, particularly in the Treasury market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I blame a lot of that to, to Dodd-Frank and, and this Volcker rule. If we didn't have the Volcker rule and we had banks that had were able to take on inventory, we put the rotations in markets, so the dislocations in individual stocks, but buyers come in and it fixes the market. So the, the Fed needs to show a little humility, let free markets work a little bit, and understand that there's a, a huge pool of money that is there that wants to take advantage of down markets, that there's a whole pool of money of distressed money that wants to take advantage uh, of declines in prices. But, you know, the Fed doesn't have this, this faith in the regenerative ability of, of, of free markets, unfortunately. So everyone thinks that, that, that it, God forbid, the Fed's not there, uh, disaster happens. And, and that is not only the case when it comes to, to markets. Now, when it comes to economy and their influence, well, that's a whole different argument. But this, this idea that the Fed had to print trillions of dollars to fix market functioning, in fact, it actually leads to market dysfunction. The, the Fed has now made markets dysfunctional because everyone now relies on that. So the Bank of Japan has completely broken the GGB market. Some days it doesn't even trade. And it's on its path to breaking the, the ETF market through their purchases. So the, the, this just total nonsense that the, we need the Fed for market functioning. And again, they, they lead to more market dysfunction than function. Mm. Uh, you make a very good argument. Uh, Peter, switching gears just a little bit, uh, I know you are somewhat bearish on the dollar because of your views on inflation. Um, and you know, sort of taking to that extreme, some are saying that the, the dollar will cease to be a global reserve asset and will sort of evolve to a, uh, a multipolar currency world. Uh, my question to you is, let's say China no longer wants to own treasuries as they as they you know have, have stopped buying um, um over the past few years um or i should say they, they have slowed down their their pace of uh, of buying um you know what is the global sovereign 
asset of choice. You know, it can't, it's probably not European assets with their negative yields. Um, you know, what you, you just mentioned the problems in the Japanese uh, government bond market. Um, you know, is it is it true? Like in the same way that it's true of stocks, uh, you know, there's no alternative. It has all these problems of overvaluation, but just Tina, there is no alternative. Um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of uh, what could be what could be an alternative to the dollar? Well, I, I think for for a while to come, it's still going to be the reserve currency, but it may just be less influential. And that is, the years progress, there'll be more transactions that take place in things other than the dollar. And 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 when I look at the dollar. It's 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 not just the inflation that I foresee, because this year we certainly saw a lot of dollar weakness and, and, and very little inflation, even though we have more inflation today than we did a year ago, not this deflation that I hear about. But the rising debts and deficits in the U.S. is dollar negative. And you can draw a 30-year chart of the U.S. dollar uh, on the budget deficit as a percentage GDP, and they pretty much follow. So I don't see any... Um, real end to these exploding debts and deficits. I mean, Congress is about to pass a $900 billion spending plan. It's going to last three months. Three months. That's how long this $900 billion is going to last, essentially. So uh, to me, that is the real anchor on the dollar, in addition to uh, the, the, the large current account deficit that always seems to widen. And then I think, again, on inflation. So there's a combination of things that are going to lead to a weaker dollar. Now, I, I acknowledge that this has now become conventional thinking, and we're going to see some bouts of, of dollar squeezes to the upside. But uh, I, I think people will be not surprised at dollar weakness. I think they'll be surprised at the extent of the dollar weakness. Mm. You know, That's to where yeah. you can apply uh, to, to what you asked, yeah. I mean, there, there's, the dollar is still going to be reserve currency. But as I said, things that will, will, will more compete but you're not going to take away that, that, that reserve currency status for, for a while to come. Mm, Peter, that's a very interesting point. Uh, I, I love uh, talking macro and hearing your macro analysis. And you know, I'd love to have you back uh, and do more, uh, more uh, you know, macroeconomic analysis. Uh, but something in addition to uh, um, your, your, your bird's eye view analysis, Peter, you're known for your uh, analysis of specific stocks. So before uh, we, we jumped on this call, we were talking um, a little bit about specific stocks. You know, you mentioned Live Nation uh, Entertainment as something that you would have seen value in it, but it's just you know it's trading at practically March levels. But then you also mentioned some other stocks where you you did see some opportunities. So can you can you uh, just give me and any of the people at home just a broad sense of you know um, specific stocks that you're looking at? There are cheap stocks out there. Uh, it's not just the, your only choice is not. Uh, the big caps, the tech stocks that we all know about, and the high-valued software names. Two that I happen to like is CVS and Walgreens that have single-digit PE ratios, uh, good dividend yields. There's this belief that Amazon's going to kill them both, and uh, I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I think that one thing that both companies are establishing is are these neighborhood healthcare uh, destinations, where CVS has the meta clinics that have these these uh, nurse practitioners that if you are a sore, sore throat or you want a flu shot or you think you got COVID, you can go get tested. And Walgreens has an agreement with Village MD where they're literally going to be putting doctor's offices next to a Walgreens. So you can go to the doctor and you can walk across the hall and get your your, your, your prescription. Uh, and, and both companies have well-established wholesale businesses, pharmacy ben benefit management businesses and relationships that they're going to compete just fine with Amazon. 
in, ter- in the other other equities, other assets within the value universe, uh, commercial real estate, uh, airlines, cruise lines. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on those sort of business models? I actually think that well, I, I'm, I'm bullish on leisure and hospitality uh, in 2021, 2022. I think the, the desire to travel from a leisure on a leisure perspective, not naturally business, is is a mega trend particularly a mega trend with baby boomers, a mega trend with a growing middle class, uh, particularly in Asia. Now, that said, you take the cruise line stocks, the airlines, they've taken on a lot of debt, they've sold a lot of equity. So that equity is, is, is worth less than it was pre-COVID. So y- you have to acknowledge that. But uh, certainly uh, travel-related names in, in Asia, uh, airport stocks throughout the world that have gotten hammered, uh, I think are going to come back pretty nicely. That um, that is, that is not going to change. The, the, the desire to travel has only been temporarily impacted. Mm. Uh, uh, Peter, I think that the view that you just expressed, that the, the desire to travel has only been temporarily... The leisure, yeah. The, so the, yeah, that, the, that the leisure travel has only been t- uh, temporarily halted rather than uh, you know, structurally impaired of the long term. That's somewhat of a contrarian view. You know, there are people who are saying that uh, travel for... for a long t- for a long time is um, you know not going to recover. Do you have any other views that I, you know? I hesitate to use the word contrarian, but do you have any other views that perhaps the market has that are predominant and uh, prevailing views in the market that that you believe uh, to be incorrect? So let, let's take office real estate for example. Uh, and the consensus is work from home and Zoom, and who needs to go to work and who needs all this space. Now, certainly in San Francisco, in New York, in LA, where there's there's people leaving, so there's, there's population excess, uh, that I get, that you're going to have extra supply. Landlords are not necessarily going to have pricing power, but office buildings in North Carolina, in Charlotte, in Atlanta, Georgia, in Austin, Texas, in Houston, in Phoenix, these are the, in Miami, these are the places that people are moving to. And, and, and I really believe that people do want to get back to their desk and their office. They want to co-mingle with their coworkers. And maybe many people are not going to go to work five days a week. They're still going to go to work maybe four days a week because they want to, but also because their employers want them to. So to me, realty in parts of, 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 of the market that are seeing population and income growth and employment growth, to me, that's actually uh, a pretty attractive area when you look out over the next five years. And to me, most people think everyone's working from home, and uh, I just don't see it uh, after we get this vaccine out there. Mm. Um, uh, so I, uh, in the background, uh, ha- have the beach. Um, so I clearly uh, am not, I am working from home. I, I'm not going to the office. Um, but Peter, well, where can you tell us where you are right now? So I'm just in a suburban office space in, uh, in New Jersey. So I've actually been coming here since Memorial Day. It's only three stories they get to walk up, so I don't have to deal with commuting into the city. I don't have to deal with getting on an elevator. So at least in, in, in the tri-state area, the suburban office space, I, I think, will we'll, we'll definitely outperform uh, New York City for those people that don't really want to commute and get on a train and, and spend an hour and a half each way getting to their office. But if you can drive a half hour to your office in Charlotte, that's a, a much more attractive way of, uh, of, of your work-life balance. Mm. 
Excellent. Um, so when you mentioned uh, you know, commercial real estate in New York City, a, a ticker that came to mind was SL Green uh, that I believe Jim Chanos talked to Mike Green about in an interview last month. Um, in, in the uh, non-San Francisco, non-New um, York uh, commercial real estate space, uh, Peter, is there any way you could give us and the audience at home a ticker of something that you like? Uh, I'll give one name, Cousins Properties. Mm, okay. Owns, uh, office buildings and some very attractive demographic parts of the country. Wonderful. Um, well, Peter, thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. Um, you know, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jack. I, I appreciate uh, having me on. Of course, anytime. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.